Morning, everybody. How's it going today? Good. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking, one of you. Man, I'm glad you're here. It's encouraging to have you here. I'm, I'm glad you're here, and I'm looking forward to seeing where God takes us here in the next few minutes and next few weeks together. Uh, before we get into Scripture, let me, um, oh, let me say hi to our friends in the family room. I almost forgot you guys today. I'm so sorry about that. You wouldn't forget them. That's a funky little uh, applause thing going on there. So you guys in the family room, God bless you. I'm glad to see you guys today. Hope you're doing well. Hope your new year's going well. So thanks for joining us today also. So we're going to look into scripture. Uh, before we do that, let me just give a little bit of uh, my upcoming days and a little bit of a, a travel log for you. Um, one of the things I never expected when I became a pastor was that I would have an opportunity to travel around the world in various places and serve Christ in other places besides just our community. And I've had several opportunities that God has given to me. And I got an invitation recently to go to India in February. So um, the deal is this. There's a local mission agency, and they work with several of our sister churches around the Sacramento region. And they have a ministry in India. And the whole idea of what they do is they're, they're, they've got these villages with no Christian message, no gospel presentation in these, in these villages. And some of the villages are comprised of people in part of the caste system who are known as untouchables. And the whole village is untouchables. And then the village next door to that will be a whole village full of people that are commercial sex workers. And it's this, there's these villages in this region that are like that. And so there are several churches in Sacramento that have adopted one village or one town, and they're starting churches in those places, building schools in those places, and just trying to bring the gospel of Jesus into those places. And they've invited us to join with them, and then so they invited me to come and check it out. So in February, I'll, go into the, I'll be going to this place called Bihar, up in the northeast corner of India. And so I'll let you know that, so you can pray for me. It's a 10-day trip. I'll let you know more about it before I leave and stuff like that, but I want you to pray for me and for the team that's going as we check out we're, I'm trying to check out how we might partner with them and, and where we might maybe adopt a village or something. So interesting, as I'm getting ready for that trip, a month ago there was a news report that came out that said there was a 7.3 earthquake in the northeast section of India in a little place called Bihar. That's the province or the state that it is that we're going. And so you know how, you know, you're Californians, you know how earthquakes go and you know when the earth begins to, sh- to shake buildings fall down and roads fall apart and what's really interesting beyond the physical devastation that goes on in an earthquake zone is the emotional devastation that often comes with it as well. Uh, My wife and I before we lived here in Folsom uh, we lived in Santa Cruz. We made some really good friends there in Santa Cruz. We left before the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake but our friends did not. They still lived there. They still live there to this day and uh, I remember after that earthquake, which, as you recall, was huge, but as kind of a a distant watcher, observer of that earthquake, I wasn't really aware of this other stuff until my friends were telling me about it, because this part wasn't on the news. The aftershocks in that earthquake were more emotionally devastating than the earthquake itself, because when the earthquake happened, buildings fell down, you see chimneys were disconnected from homes, those kinds of things. But the aftershocks were powerful, and the aftershocks kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And after a while, my friends, who were rock-solid followers of Christ, very strong in their faith, they said, you know, it's getting to the place in our lives where we are, we've lost our confidence in the ground. 
And what happens when you lose confidence in the ground that you live on? And yet when I look at our world these days, I, I'm like, you know what? That's very similar to where we're living and the age that we're living in these days. We live on shaky ground. We are surrounded by places where there's shaky ground. So think about this. How has your first week been so far of 2016? Good week so far? Like the beginning of the year, it's going okay? I mean, like, so this last week, stock market was up. <laughs> On Friday. For a couple hours. So some of you might want to sign up for Financial Peace University because you're like, no, wait, I have I, got no confidence in the ground anymore, and I don't know what to do with my finances. We, we can help you. we got Financial Peace University starting uh, this Tuesday evening. It's going to be a great, helpful program for people. So that's interesting. Uh, in, our, in our culture these days, some people are really, there's, there's a lot of fear because of all the shakiness that goes on in our culture. One of the things that people are kind of fearful of is the new definition of marriage and, and same-sex marriage and all those things. And that's caused some people great fear and concern in our culture. And then, of course, there's other people even right here among us who are like, I, I don't have any time to be afraid for marriage at large because I'm pretty f- afraid for my own marriage in my own household these days. And that, you know, that may be where some of you are. And ladies, we've got a thing coming up this, uh, this Tuesday evening also. It's a ladies' night out, and the woman who's going to speak is speaking about marriage and how do you make yours stronger. So maybe that's something that will be helpful to you uh, as you go along. Uh, North Korea announced this week that they uh, tested a hydrogen bomb, a hydrogen bomb, which is hugely bigger than the bomb that we dropped, the bombs we dropped during World War II. And North Korea tested one. And of course, our government says, no, nah, we don't really believe it was one because it wasn't a big enough pow. I'm like, I don't really care how big a pow that was. I don't want that dude in North Korea having any pow. I don't want him, I don't want him having fireworks. ISIS is wreaking havoc in the social strength of the world's culture. Here's a little terrorist organization that exists in some stolen land from Iraq and from Syria, but they've, got their, but they've got their reach expanding all the way to San Bernardino, California. And people are terrorized and terrified by that. This last week, Saudi Arabia made Iran mad. So the people in Iran made Saudi Arabia mad. So they escalated their war that they're fighting against each other in Yemen. Fear is everywhere in our culture. Some people fear that Donald Trump is going to become president. Some people fear that he won't become president. You decide where you sit. You probably already have. But fear is everywhere around us. We live in a world that is easily shaken. And it's so interesting because when the ground is easily shaken, you lose confidence in the ground. If our world is easily shaken, you lose hope in the world around you. And I think that's where we are this year. We are surrounded by fear and panic and anxiety. And nobody calls it fear. You know, it's, it's our culture, it's our cultural custom to see somebody in the grocery store that you know or see them in the lobby when you come into church or something and go, hey, how's it going? Nobody ever goes, I'm afraid. 
I mean, that, that never happens. Nobody, nobody does that. Nobody says that. We just keep it inside of our heart. We let it come out on, on social media. We, we display these things in other ways. But fear is the description of what many of us live in these days. It's because we live in a shaky world. And our confidence is shaken. So I told you, I've told you that my wife and I are expecting a grandson in about three more months, which is going to be fantastic because every week you're going to get new grandson stories. <laughs> I shouldn't have told you that. But, but you know what? I'm, I'm more worried, concerned, or fearful for, my, for the world that my grandson will live in than I ever was for the world that my children lived in, grew up in. And I don't know if that's just what it's like to be a grandpa, that's just how it rolls, or that's just the nature of the world that we live in these days. But we live in a shaky world. What if you knew that life could be unshakable? What would change in your life if you knew that your life could be unshakable? What would that do for you? How would it change you? There's a statement in, there's a, a little statement in Hebrews chapter 12 which describes an unshakable life, an unshakable world. I want you to see the, I want you to see this story. We're going to look at a few places in scripture today. So if you have a Bible and you want to pull it out, this would be an opportunity to do that. Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the chair near you. Uh, you can use your smartphone. We've got some notes on the YouVersion app. If you go to YouVersion and you find the section that says live, you'll find Lakeside Church with this today's date and you'll find some notes there if you want or you can just listen that's fine but let me read for you hebrews chapter 12 and let's just see how much this relates to who we are and where we live today hebrews 12 verse 26 says this at that time he's talking about the time when when moses was on mount sinai and god gave the ten commandments and all the law of god and the mountain shook when god showed up here's the statement at that time god's voice shook the earth but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, which is the people to whom this letter was written, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It cannot be shaken. And it's not this kingdom. It's not a kingdom that you can see. It's not a kingdom that you vote in these days. It is a kingdom that is invisible, but it's a kingdom that God is giving to you if you're a follower of Christ, and it's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And if there is a kingdom that cannot be shaken, then the king of that kingdom also cannot be shaken. And of course, the king that he's talking about, the kingdom that he's talking about is the kingdom of God. He's saying our God cannot be shaken. See, I think our world is shaky today because the gods it believes in are shaky. 
the gods it believes in are shakable. People have long believed in shaky gods. People, it seems like people love to believe in shaky gods. Do you remember when you were in school and people were talking, the teacher was talking to you about like Greek mythology? Remember the Greek gods? Remember the stories like, was that seventh grade or where, where did we learn that? Sixth grade, sixth, sixth grade. Well, it's gotten younger since I was there. Kids are smarter these days. I don't know. So anyway, so I, I did all these studies on Greek mythology and all that stuff. Greek gods are fascinating. They are always rock solid dudes. Like, it always amazes me when I see these guys, like, how'd they get that guy's head on my body? And why is that so funny? No, I mean, this guy, look at that guy's car. He's chiseled, right? And that's like, that's what the Greek gods were like. They were all powerful personages with some kind of flaw and all the stories about in the greek mythology and in the roman mythology and the arabic mythology all these ancient stories of the gods they had all these gods who were very strong but in some way very weak and vulnerable and we sort of we laugh at those guys we go how how could you believe in so many gods and how could you believe in such flawed gods and what's wrong with you anyway we do the same thing today we just have a different name for them in our culture, we call them the Avengers. Um, Poseidon could fit right in that group. Same thing. He doesn't have the cool outfit. But it's the same thing. What we, what's another word we have for those guys? Superheroes. Every superhero that Marvel has ever put out is flawed, powerful, and flawed. And every movie, that, every story that Marvel ever tells is about a powerful God that somehow gets in trouble because his weakness comes out and somebody finds his weakness and exploits their weakness until this, you know, the superhero gets over his weakness and overcompensates and then wins the battle. And that's how they all go so you don't have to see any more Marvel movies. <laughs> it's not a complicated story. It's just here's a guy who's strong and he's got weaknesses and, and, and that's what happens. And that's, our gods are no different than the old gods. But if you believe in shaky gods, your world will be shaky. And what would it be like if we knew that life could not be shaken because our God could not be shaken? And what's the attraction to shaky gods? Why do we like to have gods that are flawed? I think it's because they are more easily manipulated if a God is strong, he might be able to do what you want. But if he is flawed, then you might be able to manipulate his weakness to get what you want. My wife and I served in the Philippines for a year when I got out of graduate school. And our, we were missionaries there. And um, many of you know that the Philippines is a largely Catholic country. And so Catholic theology permeates that culture. And you may be aware that the Virgin Mary has a very exalted position in the Catholic hierarchy, the Catholic structure. They highly honor and value Mary. And in our tradition, we value Mary, but we don't put her on the same kind of pedestal that the Catholic Church does. And in the Philippines, that's elevated, that's magnified. And so while we were there, I, I developed some friendships. And when this one guy was a friend of mine, and I got to ask him one day, I said, hey, just tell me about this thing with Mary. Why do you guys put Mary so high up in all your perspective of who God is? And he said, oh, that's, that's simple. He said, if, if I ask Jesus something, he can tell me no. But if I can get his mother to ask him? <laughs> I 
Now, I know that's not how every Catholic person sees that, but that was his perspective on how that worked. Jesus couldn't tell his mother no. And what is that? That's That's just another wrapping of a vulnerable God, of a shaky God. That's not how the Bible presents Jesus. He is a God who cannot be shaken. I want to tell you a story for the next couple of minutes about a man in the Old Testament who believed in shaky gods. In fact, he was counting on the fact that there were shaky gods out there, and he wanted to take advantage of one of those shaky gods. So again, if you have your Bible, turn over to Numbers chapter 22. I want to read a story. It's long. We're going to do Numbers 22 and 23. So hang in there. It's a lot of reading this weekend, but um, hang in there because it's a fascinating story about a man who wants to manipulate a God who he believes is rather shaky, and he's in for a surprise. Numbers chapter 22, let's start reading at verse 1. Then the Israelites, excuse me, then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Let's just stop there and get the scene. So Israel has been in Egypt as a slave nation for 400 years. And God sent Moses down to Egypt. He said, let, you know, get my people out of there. All this stuff happens. They get out of Egypt. They go across the Red Sea. They come to to Mount Sinai. God gives them the Ten Commandments and all the law of God. And then they wander out in the desert. They're getting ready to go to the Promised Land, but they get in trouble, so they have to wander around for 40 years. When that 40 years are over, they're heading into the Promised Land, finally. And as they go north out of the Sinai Desert up into the Promised Land, they get up there. The Jericho River runs north and south. And on the west side is the Promised Land. And on the east side is a territory known as Moab. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that, the Israel, all that Israel had done to the Amorites, another nation there. And Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread Because of the Israelites, filled with dread. That's the word we would call terror. The the word literally is a word that means fear in the tummy, fear in the belly. That's what they had. This dread had fallen on them because the Israelites were making their way across the desert and there were hordes of them. Some scholars think there were three million Israelites who left Egypt and came across the desert to enter the promised land. Three million camped out on the doorstep of Moab. And the king is freaked out. Verse 4, the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Baor, who was at Pethor, near the Euphrates River, in his native land. So the king of Moab, on the east of the promised land, he sends for this prophet or this seer or a sorcerer named Balaam. Balak said, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they're too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. So here's this man named Balaam. He's got a great PR machine going because the king of Moab has heard about him. 
And they don't live close to each other. They're not next door neighbors. He comes from Mesopotamia, quite a ways away. But the king of Moab has heard about him. He goes, hey, Balaam, I've heard about you. What I've heard is if you bless somebody, they are blessed. And if you curse somebody, they are cursed. He goes, would you, would you come? I'll pay you a lot of cash if you'll come and put a curse on this horde of people that's parked outside my front door. Verse 7, the elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Well, spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I'll report back to you with the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite officials stayed with him. Now let's just stop there. He says, I'll report back to you the answer the Lord gives me. Balaam was a pagan prophet. He was a pagan sorcerer. But he called on all different kinds of gods and demons to get his message. And in this case, he says, hang out. The people you're talking about, the Israelites, they have a god. His name is Yahweh. In fact, when you look at this verse in verse 8, it says, I'll give you the answer that the Lord gives me. And if you look at that, you'll notice the Lord is written in capital letters. The Israelites were so honoring of the name of God, the name Yahweh, that they wouldn't say it. It was a word that was too holy to say. And so when they wrote it down in Hebrew, they, they wrote it with like a, with a, an abbreviation so they wouldn't write the word out. When they said it, they never said Yahweh, they said the Lord. And so English translators have kept that custom. And so in the Old Testament, every time you see the word Lord in capital letters, it's a substitute for the name Yahweh. And so he says, spend the night, I'll report back to you tomorrow with the answer that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, gives me. So the Moabite officials stayed with him. God came to Balaam and asked, hey, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, well, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. Yahweh comes to Balaam. He goes, hey, who's, who's, in, who's staying in the house tonight? He said, well, I, I, got some, I got some people that came from the king because he wants me to put a curse on the Israelites. And God gives Balaam a very clear message. Don't go. Don't curse. Sounds like parents. Don't go or don't curse. So that's, that's God's word to Balaam. Don't go and don't curse. Don't, don't put a curse on them. Why? Because I've blessed them, God says. I'm blessing those people. Verse 13, the next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's officials, go back to your own country for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite officials returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak sent other officials, more numerous and more distinguished. In other words, bigger mucky mucks. Then the first, they came to Balaam and said, This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Don't let anything keep you from coming to me, because I will reward you handsomely. And do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. So the king's like, come on, man, I got a lot of cash. I'm going to pay you well. Come do this thing for me. But Balaam answered them, look, even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. 
Now he's claiming that Yahweh is his own God. It's like there's some movement going on for him or something. Now spend the night here so that I can find out what else the Lord will tell me. Which is interesting because didn't the Lord already give him instructions? How clear were the Lord's instructions to him? Don't go and don't curse. Don't. It's like it's not all that mysterious. It's like pretty clear. You know, spend the night and let me see what the Lord says. So verse 20, that night God came to Balaam and said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. And you're going to find out in a minute what God is saying in that is like, okay, you're bent on going, aren't you? You really want to see this happen, don't you? All right, you go, but don't do anything that I don't tell you to do. Sometimes, don't you get so bent on a path? And God has said, don't, don't do it, don't go, don't curse, don't whatever. Don't you get so bent on a path that you're unstoppable and even God can't stop you or God won't stop you? He could, but he won't. That's where Balaam is. Now, the next part is a fascinating story, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, but it's a little weird. And I want you to use your imagination as we read this story, okay? Don't close it down until we get to the end, okay? Are you with me? Okay, good. I love this part. Verse 21, Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went. See, God's not into this thing. He's like, go ahead. But God was very angry that he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn either to the left, to the right, or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey. You've made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? You have a logical donkey. (laughs) No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. Sometimes we get into a spot in our lives where we are so bent on the course that we want to take and we're just hoping that our God is shakable enough 
or weak enough or flawed enough to give us permission to keep moving forward. But like Balaam, we are on a reckless path. I love this story. I love it for many reasons. One, one reason is because I find out in this story that God doesn't need an eloquent preacher to do the job. Because God could speak through a donkey. Sometimes people will go, Pastor Brad, you're so good at like, preaching and telling the story. And it's like, yeah, but it doesn't matter because God could use a donkey. So, Whatever. But I also like the fact that God spoke through this donkey. And I don't, I don't know how this thing all shakes out. And some people get kind of freaked out. It's like, well, I can't believe the Bible, believe the Bible if it's got the story of a talking donkey. And I, what's that all about? Look, there's two things that get opened in this story. One is the mouth of the donkey gets opened so he can speak. But the second is the eyes of the prophet get opened so he can see. And which is harder, to open the mouth of a donkey or to open the eyes of a man who wants not to see? Donkeys have the reputation for being stubborn. How much more so a human being who wants not to see? If you find the story hard to believe, consider this. People who follow Christ actually believe that God rose a dead man from the grave. And sometimes the path that we are on is reckless. But God cannot be shaken. When Balaam recovers from seeing the angel of the Lord and realizes that he came within a donkey of being killed, he goes on, he travels on to Moab, and he, and he meets with Balak the king. And Balak is willing to pay him money to put a curse on the people of Israel, but God won't let Balaam do it because the people of Israel are already blessed. And so Balaam makes three prophetic statements about the people of Israel. In the first one, he blessed them. In the second one, he blessed them. In the third one, he blessed them. Because in the end, he could not do what God would not permit. In the middle of his second statement about the people of Israel... In chapter 23, verse 18, it says this. Then, Balak, then Balaam spoke his message. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not human that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. Our God cannot be shaken. That's a truth we need today. Our God cannot be shaken. Now, if the world is frightened about all the things that are going on in this world, and if the world believes in shakable gods, no wonder there's fear for them. 
But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've crossed the line of faith and said, Jesus, I'm in, I trust you, then you have to know this. When you trust Jesus as your God, you're trusting a God that cannot be shaken. He doesn't have some strengths and some weaknesses. He's not vulnerable in some place in his character. He cannot be shaken. And Hebrew says, he is giving us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That changes everything. That changes how you respond to this world. It changes how you respond to the bad news in this world. It changes it. Because your God cannot be shaken. And if your God cannot be shaken, you can live a life that cannot be shaken. That's possible. All the way through the scriptures, over and over and over, there are statements about the fact that our God cannot be shaken. In the Old Testament, like this story of Balak and Balaam, in the New Testament, various places where God says, I cannot be shaken. James chapter 1 is a story where James, it's a letter where James is talking to people who are shaky in their faith and shaky in their commitments. They are, he says, they are double-minded. They are tossed by the waves of the sea. And to that group of people, James writes this in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. What causes shifting shadows? On a given day, what causes shifting shadows? The sun. Thank you. A little interactive. Yeah, the sun, right? The sun goes up, the sun comes down, and the shadows shift throughout the day. Who made the sun? God did. God is giving us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He says, I'm going to remove those things that can be shaken. What are those? Created things, he says. But I'm going to give you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Why? Because I'm a God who does not change like shifting shadows. God's creation has shifting shadows. God is above his creation. And he cannot be shaken. If you could lock that truth into your life, you would be on a path to a life that cannot be shaken. And I want to invite you into it. The writer to the Hebrews invites you into it. He says, this is a passage we started with in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, now because you are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, I want you to practice thanksgiving In your life, every time you practice thanksgiving, you practice trusting God. You practice trusting the God who cannot be shaken. Every time you give thanks. So when a disaster happens in our world, whether it's a natural disaster or a human-made disaster, in the midst of that, if you find something to give God thanks for, you find that you are exercising faith. And that faith, that trust, builds into your life something that cannot be shaken. He says, I want you to practice thanksgiving. He says, I want you to practice worship. I want you to practice worshiping God with reverence and awe. Reverence and awe. The Interesting, the Greek word for reverence is the word fear. 
He says, I want you to transfer your fear. You're, you're afraid of all these things in the world. You're afraid of the politics and you're afraid of the international angst that's out there. You're afraid of the finances that are going on. You're afraid of all these things. He says, I want you to transfer your fear from all those things that are so shaky. I want you to transfer it to the God who cannot be shaken. And when you transfer it to God, it's no longer called fear. It's now called reverence. He says, I want you to practice worshiping God in reverence and awe. As I've been journeying through these scriptures, getting ready for this series, I've been changing the way I do my own personal devotional life. I have a habit of getting uh, up and reading the scripture and praying on my own, just my own time with God, not part of work, not part of being a pastor, just being a, a Christ follower. And I've been changing the way I spend that devotional time with God every day in the last few weeks, just getting ready for this and understanding what this is talking about. And I'm adding more worship into my prayer time as opposed to, God, I need this and I want this and I want the other thing. I got all kinds of wants that I want God to do. Nothing wrong with that at all. But I've been adding worship into my time with God again. Not not big house worship, not, hey, let's get together and sing songs worship. Nothing wrong with that either. But my worship time. Say, God, here's my prayer today. I worship you. You're my God. You cannot be shaken. I trust you. And I worship him. He goes, I want you to practice that so that you learn to live in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And I invite you into that. I invite you into a life of worship. I invite you into a life of thanksgiving, which builds your trust in this God. And some of you, I'm sure some of you here in this room, some of you in the family room today, you are in a spot where you go, hey, I'm thinking about Jesus. I was, I was getting really close to putting my faith in Jesus till I heard the talking donkey story. <laughs> but maybe some of you are like, you know, I've been investigating this Jesus for a while, and it's time for me to put my faith in him. I invite you to take that step, to tell him today, Jesus, I'm in. I trust you. From now on, I trust you. I believe that you are the God that cannot be shaken. I trust you. And some of you, if, you make that, if you're making that decision even today, you're crossing that line of faith even today. I would invite you to take the next step, which is baptism. To go, oh, I'm going to follow Christ in baptism. Two weeks from now, we're going to celebrate baptism here in the church. On Tuesday night this week, we've got an opportunity to come for a begin class where we explain who Jesus is and how do we connect with him by faith. I invite you to come to that class and hear what that's about. And, and again, take that step, cross the line of faith, say, Jesus, I'm in. He is a God who cannot be shaken. He wants you to live a life that cannot be shaken. Next weekend, we'll talk about how that works. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for who you are and what you're doing among us. God, I pray for me and for my friends here in this room, in the family room, people that watch the podcast later, I pray for us that we would know you. We get so distracted by the things of this world or we get so distracted by the, by, by the reckless path that we choose sometimes. 
Lord, I pray that we would not be distracted, but we would know who you are. We would know that you are a God who cannot be shaken, who is rock solid, who loves us with an everlasting, unchanging love, and who wants to pour out your blessing on us. May we know that. Lord, for the people that are searching for you, would you show them yourself today in that light? And may they know you. Lord, we trust you, we honor you, we come to you through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.